Like most dynamic individuals of any generation, James J. Hill displayed what Alan Nevins once called a sort of lunar dualism. His positive traits were quite remarkable. A quick intelligence, a power of analysis, an incredible power of will and personality, and an unparalleled work ethic and commitment. His negative attributes were mirror images of the positive, an extreme irascibility that sometimes exploded into rage, a willfulness that could turn into outright ruthlessness, and such a preoccupation with the purpose at hand that he sometimes lost sight of the broader perspective. What does one conclude in the final analysis about this remarkable man? It is entirely appropriate that the passenger train from Chicago to Seattle is called the Empire Builder in his memory. For his hand reached into every aspect of building the regional economy and social order, from transportation to agriculture, mining, lumbering, maritime trade, and town and city building. His larger-than-life stature is well attested by the persistence, nearly 80 years after his death, of his memory and legend. The various determinists no doubt are correct that events shape people more than people shape events. But the life of James J. Hill certainly demonstrates the impact one willful individual can have on the course of history. We shall never see his like again, and that simple fact adds yet another dimension to the fascination his life will afford to each new generation. All right, so that's an excerpt from the book that I read this week and the one I'm going to talk to you about today, which is James J. Hill, Empire Builder of the Northwest, and it was written by Michael P. Malone. So I found out about, I had, uh, apparently James J. Hill's uh, really famous, uh, really well-known. I had never heard of him until I was reading, I think it was Poor Charlie's Almanac. And Charlie, in a speech, listed the, the kind of business operators that him and Warren admired. And James J. Hill was on that list. I started doing some research into books and stuff. And then I also found that if you took all the great American fortunes that have ever, built, have ever been built and adjusted for inflation, uh, Hill would be one of the 50th richest uh, entrepreneurs to ever live in America. So before I jump into the rest of the book, I just want to pull up some quotes. And it's quotes from James J. Hill that I think give us an insight into his personality and kind of makes uh, understanding who he was as a person easier to do. And then as a result of that, uh, then becomes easier to see why he made certain decisions in, in how he built his, his company and his business. So here's one. He says, give me snuff whiskey and Swedes, and I will build a railroad to hell. Uh, he was asked later in his life, what is responsible for his success? This was his answer. Work, hard work, intelligent work, and then more work. Uh, I really like this idea about thinking about life as an adventure and then, you know, uh, running a business as, a, as a, like a tool to use in that adventure. So he says, most men who have really lived have had, in some share, their great adventure. This railway is mine. And then the last quote, which I found really interesting because a lot of the, 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 the I, I would say, opinions of a lot of the people I've covered on the podcast kind of share what he's about to say here and the, the importance of being frugal and not wasteful in your resources. So it says, if you want to know whether you're destined to be a success or failure in life, you can easily find out. The test is simple and it is infallible. Are you able to save money? If not, drop out. You will lose. You may, not, you may think not, but you will lose as sure as you live. 
the seed of success is not in you. Okay, so before I jump into his early life and his personality, I want to start with the end in mind. And I want to read three things to you that I think if you know right up front, uh, it makes it easier to understand James Hill as the person and, of course, extrapolating it on to the to decisions he's going to make when he builds his company. So where he starts in railroading, and I'll get to what he was doing before that. Um, the earliest predecessor uh, railroad to the GN, which is the, the shorthand for Great Northern Railway, that's the the transcontinental railway that James Hill is most famous for building. It was his life's work. It also, uh, about 100 years, maybe like 110 years later, Warren Buffett buys what that road, uh, the Great Northern Railroad, was also merged into a bunch of other railroads. Anyways, Warren Buffett buys those uh, in 2009 for like $44 billion. So it says the earliest predecessor railroad to the GN was the St. Paul and Pacific Railroad. It was a bank railroad with a small amount of track in the state of Minnesota. That is where James starts, okay? Uh, This is where he ends up. The Great Northern was the only successful built privately funded transcontinental railroad in U.S. history. No federal subsidies were used during the construction, unlike all other transcontinental railroads. That's really interesting. And then this is important to understand how he got there. The Great Northern, because he... had a different strategy than other people. The Great Northern was built in stages slowly to create profitable lines before extending the road further into the undeveloped Western territories. And I'll talk about how that compares and contrasts with his competitors of the day. But when I read that part, it immediately made me think of uh, Jeff Bezos' approach to building Blue Origin, his rocket company. Their motto is, slow is smooth, smooth is fast. Um, And to a great degree, that's what James Hill did. All right, so I want to start with a bunch of random quotes about his personality that are scattered throughout the book that I've put in all in one place, and then we'll get into uh, the time he was in and his early life. All right, Uh, personality. Hill alienated colleagues as often as he inspired them. He was arrogant, self-righteous, sometimes too ambitious, and frequently a blatant bully. Hill lashed out at managers and workers alike who failed to meet his taxing demands of production and loyalty. Uh, More about his personality. He was the embodiment of high energy. Uh, He drank little, worked hard, and read incessantly. Uh, He simply could not delegate authority and live with the outcome. And then he has this personality dichotomy. It says, clearly he accomplished more than all but a few other leading figures in the history of American industry and regional development, and was, in fact, a man of remarkable remarkable abilities, determination, and drive. Just as clearly, however, he could be quite ruthless, overbearing, and politically domineering. Okay, so I think it's important to understand when this story takes place. It's a time that's really hard for us living in modern times to wrap our head around. So it says, perhaps no other generation in all of American history played so fascinating or central a role in national development as the one that, born in the 19, or excuse me, 1830s and 1840s, came to maturity in the Civil War crisis. For this was a generation that not only forged the modern American nation, but also worked the industrial, commercial, transportation revolution that formed its modern economy and society. All of them, meaning the builders of this generation, seized the sudden and unprecedented opportunities the new age presented to them. Okay, so let's go back into the early lives of the early life of James J. Hill. He uh, he started in rather humble beginnings. He was born in Canada. It says the growing family led a characteristic frontier existence. James later recalled that his father was not very prosperous 
and he remembered lying awake at night staring at the moonlight beaming through holes in the roof. He also had a devastating early injury in life. When he was nine, hunting led to a tragic incident. A bow that he had made snapped, lashing the arrow sharply back into his right eye and pried it from its socket. This is a little bit about his early life and education. He became a voracious reader even before school days, dwelling on the staples of the 19th century in the British tradition. The Bible, Shakespeare, Byron, Robert Burns, and the chivalrous novels of Sir Walter Scott were among his favorites. Something that happens in early in his life that he takes with him and is, I would say, integral into the success he had in his career was he develops a, a habit and a love for, of learning. Uh, when James was 11, he attended classes at the Quaker Academy. Although Hill often told listeners about the inadequacies of his education, this is a quote from him, he says, I never went to school a day after I was 14 years old. The fact is he had quite a good education by the minimal standards of the time. He could definitely read, write, and reckon. Uh, from an innate intelligence and the fostering of family and teachers, he loved to learn. So around this time, he starts studying history. Uh, this is what he learns from history. And he starts to empathize, or I guess idolize would be one way to put it, is the, the power of one dynamic individual, which history is obviously full of, right? Stories from. It says, to many, Hill always seemed the embodiment of cold and analytical practicality. But even as a boy, he revealed how realism and romanticism can coexist in the same mind. Think about how he described the building of a railroad. He was very realistic and pragmatic how he goes about doing that. But he described it as a great adventure. There's like a romanticism uh, element to that. A romantic element to that. So he says, history offers such uh, offers other such cases, like that of Robert Goddard, who was not only a great rocket scientist, but also an avid reader of science fiction. Like so many other 19th century youths, young Jim Hill fell under the spell of Bonapartism, so he idolized Napoleon. The fetish of strength of will, the power of one dynamic of individual to change the world, and the conquering hero. Around this time, yeah, he's about 14 years old. His dad dies, so he has to stop uh, going. He's not. He can't go to school anymore. He has to go to work to support the family. So he gets uh, a job at a general store. It says uh, his childhood suddenly ended with the death of his father. The days of family togetherness now came abruptly and tragically to an end. No longer able to stay in school, the 14-year-old James had to go get a work. Had to go out and work. So he gets a job at a general store. He keeps the books. He does clerical work. He milks cows and he cuts wood among some of his other tasks. But this is what he learned from his first job. Here began his first lessons in the knacks of dealing with customers, making ledgers, and handling merchandise. He proved himself highly industrious and adept to them all. Now, around this time, he works there for several years, and then he has a random lucky encounter. Remember, he's in Canada at this time. Uh, he's 18 years old uh, when he starts to have thoughts about leaving the nest. A trader from St. Paul, Minnesota, took a liking to the lad after he had voluntarily watered the man's horse. Handing him a tattered copy of a New York newspaper uh, that had the caption, Splendid Chances for Young Men in the West, the trader told him, Go out there, young man. That's the place for you. Jim carried the copy around, meaning the paper, reading it and rereading it until it fell to pieces. And now he finally focused his dreams of adventure on a real decision. A rich imagination and a driving ambition were fundamental parts of his nature. So then this is when he strikes out on his adventure. He doesn't know what he's going to do. All he knows is he's going to head in the general direction of uh, St. Paul, Minnesota. So he, goes, he has this adventure across America. And he leaves Ontario with $600 in, in cash, his life savings, but seeming little else. 
And then the author corrects himself there. He goes, actually, he took, he took with him all the tools he would need to succeed in America. A quick intelligence, self-sufficiency, genuine courage, an engaging personality, a fierce ambition, and a remarkable work ethic. So you have those traits and you, you can, whatever you direct those traits in, whatever, uh, wherever you point that. Uh, those are those are usually traits that they're going to lead to to good fortune and success. So he goes uh, after I think it's like six months journey. He finally winds up in St. Paul, Minnesota. This is going to be the base of his operations, and he just finds employment uh, where many others did at the time. And so he sorry, says he found employment on the levees along the Mississippi River, which is the focus of the city's economic livelihood uh, before the 1860s. Um, he says, over 800 chugging steamers, ste- those are steamboats, course to these levee- levees during the busy, warm months, months of the year. He carried the title of shipping clerk, but he did maintain the books. His duties also included handling the incoming and outgoing freight, and therefore he was involved in much manual labor on the docks and in the warehouses. The youth who had known long hours of loneliness on the farm took naturally to the com- camaraderie of the levees and the variety of the work and people suited his high-energy nature, as did the fact that he could work with little supervision. So he's on, you see the early, early um, indications that he's meant for a life of entrepreneurship, the fact that he didn't need anybody supervising him. Uh, so he co-signed and he would expedite freight, and he, learned, he naturally learned quickly who was doing what and how things worked. So this is the education that this work is, is giving him at a very young age. He worked incredibly hard, sometimes laboring late into the night, falling asleep at the desk, then getting up for a swim in the river and a cup of black coffee, then going back to work. So he's doing this at 18, 19. He does this all the way up, up until like his mid-60s. He's, his schedule is insane. Uh, as he saw in retrospect, those years formed his apprenticeship, and he learned much more than bookkeeping. He learned how to extract favorable rates for shippers, how to beat back their attempts to inflate rates artificially. Remember, this is just steamboats, but uh, he's going to apply this to his work in railroading later. How to purchase commodities cheaply and undercut competitors, how to deliver efficiently, and how to cultivate and maintain the loyalties of customers by voluntarily anticipating and looking after their every wish. These lessons would serve him well when he switched over to the world of transportation. If there ever was a born entrepreneur, it was Jim Hill. Highly intelligent, highly motivated, highly acquisitive, and it was only a matter of time before he went into business on his own. So before he can, he can switch from employee to entrepreneur, he has to go through a series of experiences. And one of the most beneficial experiences was the fact that he developed this habit of meeting older, more successful people and then striking up relationships with them and learning from them. And then a lot of, the, a lot of times those relationships formed into partnerships. This is an example of that. Hill meets uh, this guy named Norman Kitson, who's an older, more successful entrepreneur in the, tra- in the transnational fur trade. Says a generation older than Hill, Kitson was now one of St. Paul's leading businessmen and wealthiest individuals. He was a forwarding agent there for the Hudson Bay Company and a one-time mayor of the city. Uh, so Kitson's got his hands on all kinds of different um, businesses. Some of them conflict with the work that he's doing for the Hudson Bay Company. That conf- conflict needs to be resolved eventually, and that's going to lead to a partnership with Hill. It says, uh, when the all-powerful HBC, that's the Hudson Bay Company, was fr- uh, began frowning on Kitson's work for other independents, he made an arrangement to turn this business over to Hill as a partner. The young man had worked hard at befriending Kitson, and he, as, he, uh, as he would other older established people of power later in his career. 
the old Scott, meaning Kitson became much impressed by him. Jim found himself more and more heavily involved in the trade, brokering furs of shipment uh, and co-signing and co- the movement of finished products northward on the frontier. Remember, they're in like largely... St. Paul's a small city at the time, but you go west, you go north, and it's it's still frontier. It's largely uninhabited wilderness. That's where he's going to build his railroad, by the way. And that's what makes it so difficult. Um, so it said, uh, this trade would soon lead him naturally into the actual transportation business northward. Kitsy became his close friend, mentor, and longtime business associate. Jim would name his firstborn son, James Norman, in the old man's honor. Um, so he starts out. At this time, you know, he becomes, he, do, he doesn't start out saying, hey, I want to be one of the most 50th, wealthiest perps, people of all time. He starts out with modest goals, and then, interesting enough, he rapidly exceeds them. Uh, I shouldn't say rapidly. He exceeds them. It does take, take a, uh, actually, it's the opposite of rapid. It takes a long time. He had figured out uh, that once he had amassed, he had figured that once he had amassed $100,000, he would retire and devote himself to a life of study, philanthropy, and fatherhood. But like other ambitiously driven entrepreneurs of his time, he soon abandoned his dream. So he's doing all this work. This reminded me, remember, uh, we found out about, uh, about Hill because of Buffett buying his railroad and Munger's talking about how they, they admire like, the way he operated the business. He also echoes a little bit about like, what uh, people, somebody asked Warren, like, why don't more people... Um, emulate his strategy because they don't want to get rich slowly um hill to some to a large degree did follow that he got rich slowly and then later later in life it accelerated uh so it says 11 years later at the time he entered the world of railroading he would count assets of hundred and fifty thousand dollars, and this would prove only to be a modest beginning so there's not many people that are gonna put in that much time and effort into something like again it's going to make him a multi 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 millionaire if you account for inflation it's like you know he's had over a billion dollars at this point um but uh it it didn't start out quickly think about that what they just said 11 years it took him 11 years and that's the time he gets in the railroad business we're not even there yet it takes him 11 years before he can hit his goal or exceed his goal of having over a hundred thousand dollars um, okay, so I'm going to skip ahead. This is when he starts his own business. We're still not in, in, um, in railroading yet, but he, he has to go through these experiences to get that opportunity. Uh, so says, Jim Hill began a series of career thrusts that moved him decisively away from employment for others and towards independent entrepreneurship. Uh, he meets another friend. Uh, don't worry about the name. I'll skip ahead that. He secures the St. Paul agency for the powerful Northwest Packet Company. Uh, this is a company that had a near monopoly over an, uh, the Upper Mississippi River steamboat trade. Um, working as an independent a- agent, Hill applied his well-established contacts and knowledge of the local marketplace to serve not only the freight and passenger needs of the packet line, but also those of its close affiliate, uh, the Milwaukee and Mississippi Railroad. So this is where he starts getting the idea. He's introduced to the industry that he eventually conquers. Uh, a year later, he forms the firm James J. Hill Company. He negotiated an exclusive arrangement as forwarding agent for the St. Paul and Pacific Railroad, whereby his firm would transfer produce from riverboats to the firm's rails that pointed westward. Westward, So he's doing work that they don't want to do. Now, here's the crazy thing. that I already told you what the St. Paul and Pacific Railroad was. It's the road he's going to eventually goes bankrupt, but he takes over. So this is the railroad which Hill would one day command. That's an insane sentence, right? Leased him 
uh, a suburb riverfront, riverfront location on which he built a large warehouse that served as a transfer facility. So he also used them to set up to help finance the beginning of his business because he's taking apart a business process that they don't want to do. Uh, during this time, he starts a bunch of different businesses. Now, this is a very different strategy than he employs later in his life. One thing I've most learned from Hill, like I've learned from a lot of these people since we start this series, is his focus on one thing. Now, he's not there yet. Eventually, he's going to say, the Great Northern Railroad is my life's focus. That's it. But at this time, he's still experimenting. He's got to expose himself to different kinds of experiences. That's how you learn, right? So he's got this other business where he's, he's taking... Uh, things off of steamers and putting them on the railroads. And he also said, hey, I could start a fuel business. Uh, he says, Jim Vass expanded his fuel business, concentrating first on the cordwood business he had been interested in for several years. Uh, this, this comes from a lot of the, the timber that's in the, 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 the Northwest. Um, so he starts having that um, cut down, transported out, and then people obviously purchasing it for... Um, for, 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 for fuel. Now, he's also selling that fuel to the railroad, right? So he's learning a lot about the business. One of the, I'll get there in a minute, but one of his um, assets, like we started off uh, talking about the fact that his railroad was one of the, was the only one that wasn't built by subsidies, right? It's also one, the only one that didn't go bankrupt during the, the large depression. And I think it was 1893. Um, but one game, one um, advantage he had is that he came from the bottom up of the industry. A lot of the railroads at this time were basically put together. They called them associations. And you had like rich people in Europe and New York and the Northeast, and they would just buy them. It was like, imagine like a private equity firm coming in and trying and running the business, right? Uh, as opposed to like the entrepreneur who starts very slowly and, and builds from the bottom. So you have these two completely different approaches. And Jim's is the only one that winds up working out in this industry at this specific time in history. Okay. Now, this is a strategy for operating his fuel businesses, but again, we see a lot of his business philosophy that he applies early in life. He just takes that same tool, that same idea, and then applies it to a different industry or a different set of experiences later. So it says, coal was crowding fuel wood for the market, and as usual, Hill quickly got out in front of an emerging trend. Hill's rise to the top of the local coal business is interesting not only because it formed a cornerstone of his career and generated, generated venture capital for later investments, but it also revealed for the first time his instincts towards what friends would call vertical and rational integration of an industry. Okay, that's what he would call it. Foes call it monopolization. Uh, he would immerse himself in details of the business. That never changed. He would do that through reading and correspondence. Um, uh, then as the size of his, so he, he starts learning about it. Then he starts build, uh, buying more tonnage, right? And he does this later on. He says, uh, he would, he would work to purchase mass tonnage of high quality anthracite coal. Then as the size of his shipments and thus his bar bargaining power grew, he would remorselessly, meaning ruthlessly leverage railroads to deliver the coal at preferred rates, learning in the process skills that would serve him well when he ended up at the other side of the transportation bargaining table. So right now he's He's negotiating preferred rates with railroads. Eventually, he's going to sit on the other side. He's going to own the railroads. He's got to do the negotiation from the other side to the people that want lower rates. Uh, we see more of his approach to how to build a formidable company here. Uh, in his coal dealings and in his other, and, and other dealings to come, Jim Hill provided himself, excuse me, proved himself a tough, relentless, and driven taskmaster and frequently a hard man to get along with. Definitely. He had a very difficult personality. Um, he's, he's going to show this here by, he's got a partnership with this guy, Griggs. 
Griggs not working nearly as hard enough. Doesn't doesn't think he measures up. So he says, convince Griggs that uh, that Griggs did not measure up. He forced Griggs out of the partnership. Now Griggs goes off. Now here's a good, a good thing though. So you know he's ruthless, taskmaster, hard to hard to deal with. Those that's difficult, right? But he also would change his mind and his course quickly when it made sense to. And that reminded me a lot of the podcast I did on Henry Singleton. So this Griggs goes independent, right? Hill kicks him out of the partnership. Griggs goes independent. When Griggs goes independent, Hill ruthlessly employed his influence with the railroads to keep Griggs from getting preferred rates on shipments. So now he went from, from former partner to adversary. But he changes his mind here. He says, ever the pragmatist as well as the tough competitor, Hill also eventually uh, presaged another future characteristic when he abruptly changed course and parlayed with his chief competitors to bring peace to the area coal industry by joining together in a market sharing consortium. Trust, there's a lot of ways to put this, but monopolies, there's a bunch of different words there. But now they're they're not going to compete, they're going to work hand in hand. Uh, The company was highly efficient, integrated organization that served its customers very well. Uh, within little over a year, Hill would depart the independent coal business to devote his full energies and attention to railroading. So it's here that we get a, uh, some more insights into his business philosophy by what he learned from the coal business. He said it had taught him much and had demonstrated a salient fact of his entirely pragmatic business personality. When competition suited him in, a, in entering a market, he competed fiercely. When competition became wasteful to him, he did not hesitate to end it even if it meant joining with old enemies and creating an unblushing situation of monopoly. The breadth of the young entrepreneur's business activities seemed quite remarkable. This is some other side businesses he would engage at the time. He frequently bought up machinery and buildings at foreclosure sales and resold them for tidy profits. This, these could be items as diverse as iron foundry equipment and saloon furniture. Sometimes he failed, but other times he prof, prof, profited handsomely learning in the process more and more and more about the ever-widening ranges of endeavor. So around this time, before he gets into the railroad business, he starts a steamboat transportation business. And the problem with that business is steamboats are seasonal since the river froze every winter. So around this time, uh, the railroad was expanding in this like geographic area, and since trains could uh, transport people and goods year-round, he started having the ideas of looking into railroads. Uh, it said, although the greater share of Hill's warehousing forwarding business uh, still centered in the Twin City area, during this brief period, the Red River trade captured his imagination and began to take more and more of his time. So as a byproduct of what's going on here, he's constantly exposed to the opportunity in railroads. So it's only a matter of time from where we are in the story to he's like, oh, I need to be working in that, in, in that industry. It says, in this enterprise, just as in the fuel business, Jim Hill's behavior foretold future and larger happenings. Steamboating on the, on the Red River had only a few years to go. By the clo- this is, so he's, the industry he's in is going to eventually cease to exist. By the close of the 1870s, advancing rails would seal its doom. It's just so much more economical to, to transport by rail than steamboats. And eventually, uh, a few years after Hill dies, the same thing happens to railroads with the, the invention of the interstate highway system. Uh, the railroad industry starts be getting a lot of its competition has has competition and starts losing a lot of business to uh, to trucks and cars. Uh, this might me have meant that James Hill move into the move that James Hill's move into the business would prove to be a dead end, but in fact it proved to be quite the opposite. His enterprises now bracketed the stalled out St. Paul and Pacific Railroad on both ends. In St. Paul, his warehousing business buttressed the railroad at the base of its operations. 
Unlike most Minnesotians who, vo- who viewed the St. Paul and Pacific as a near worthless derelict, it was a crappy run, small regional uh, railroad at the time, Hill viewed it as a miracle waiting to happen, a potentially wondrous enterprise simply lacking competent leadership. And how did he get Like, how is he coming up with such a drastic um, difference of opinion than everybody else? Well, he just studied more than other people did. You know, most we've talked about this a lot. Uh, humans don't learn, they mimic. Everybody's just mimicking. They're not actually looking into it. So he looks into it. And this is, he says, he studied the road constantly, reading every scrap of information he could, he could find out about it and boring anyone who would listen with endless detail as to what it could one day become. Thus would his move into river transportation lead naturally to an incredibly promising career in railroading. And that's just instructive for all of us that sometimes there's opportunities that you're not going to have, uh, that are not going to afford themselves to you until you take a, uh, some other preliminary step. In the case of Hill, the preliminary step is he had to get involved in warehousing and steamboat transportation to realize that there's a greater opportunity out there. But that would he would have never come to that conclusion had one, he did not have done the work and the research into it, but two, had he not had those experiences beforehand. Okay, so this is the part of the book I was referencing earlier. Um, so that my note I left myself was his year of experience and his wayward, wayward path into the industry proved to be invaluable. Let me tell you what I mean by that. He possessed a priceless advantage compared with most other 19th century rail titans. Rather than coming from the outside world of finance, as most of them did, he arose from the inside world of freighting and transportation. And he knew this world in all its complexity. So this reminds me, there's several things that remind me of uh, Samuel Zamuri. Uh, uh, I did the podcast, I think it was back in like the 30s. I can't remember the, the exact number right now. But he said something in that book, uh, The Fish That Ate the, World, the Whale, that, that stuck with me and I never forgot. And that's that if you know your business from A to Z, there's no problem you can't solve. And it's amazing how many people will engage in whatever craft they're doing and not try to actually understand the intricacies from A to Z. And therefore, they're presented problems they may not be able to solve in the future. Uh, what, what the author's describing here is him understanding the minute details that the people sitting in New York or in the Netherlands or in Britain just could never understand. And it also talks, uh, I'll tell you more about how he applies that. He actually in the field constantly with the workers too, similar to how Samuel, Samuel Zamuri was. So it says um, uh, he knew all the world and all its complexities. He was about to demonstrate how certain well-established regional capitalists on the frontier could challenge and even best larger Eastern interests. So he went to beating people that were way more capitalized than he was. And so he's right now, he's in his life moderately successful, six-figure net worth, doing okay. But the amount of money that he's about to make in, in railroading, in a sense, he was preparing his whole life for this opportunity. He's got a roundup. He's like, listen, we need to buy this bankrupt railroad. I don't have enough money. So he has to round up. They, they, he calls them the associates, business partners, essentially. And he he's saying that, hey, um, we need $5 million. And his estimate was that the return on that $5 million is going to make us $19 million. They make a lot more than that. But there's a number of things happening here. It's like, like okay, let me just read my notes. Hill was obsessed with completing, uh, uh, with completing the bankrupt slash crooked SPMP rail line so the railroad company could get the land grant. Uh, land grant is very important to understanding the, the this railroad industry. A land grant is basically a gift of real estate. Uh, so you give them the land or the or its use privileges, and it's made by a government, in this case the United States, 
uh, as a means of enabling works or as a reward for services of an individual, especially in return for military services. Sometimes we've seen it throughout history. But in this case, they're giving anybody the, anybody that operate a rail, railroad because it's in the national interest to have an, a, an, like a, a national railroad system. So every different, all the different cities and states could constantly, you could ship not only people, but goods and, and, and crops or whatever the case was. So he's like, listen, we need to get, uh, we need to, to take over the S&P because first of all, they don't know what they're doing. They're bankrupt. They don't know how to run the business and because they have very valuable land grants, right? Now, the reason I bring that up is because being obsessed is an edge. Going back all the way, I would say this, this applies to multiple Founders episodes, but if you go back starting at Founders number 88 with Warren Buffett, it's like that's one of the key things you're going to learn from Warren Buffett or any of the other people that we've been covering the last few weeks is that you've got to figure out where the hell your edge is in life. And then once you have that, you've got to bet heavily on that. That's what the, they're telling us to do, that all these entrepreneurs are telling us to do with their actions. Uh, so being obsessed here is an edge. And so this is how Hill talks about it. He says, here stood the kind of opportunity that came only... Uh, that came only with the opening of a new frontier, once in a lifetime, once in many lifetimes. So the Hill estimates, okay, we need $5 million for a $19 million game. Hill, and this is a, the example of his, his obsession, why I believe that's one of his edges. Hill, who knew the road better than anyone else, constantly argued to his friends the potential prize defied description. No one understood the impact, the size of the opportunity that could happen if it was executed correctly, th that Hill did. Indeed, he seemed completely, completely fixated on the project, meaning he's obsessed. Many years later, his friend recalled that Jim had spoken of it to him probably several hundred times during the mid-1870s. This takes up many years to do. Also, his perseverance, you have to applaud him for that. But the idea that you're going to talk about something, like he's thinking about it over and over and again and won't shut up and won't stop talking about it. So that's the kind of person you have to compete with. And if you were in the 18, where were we, 1870s somewhere? Yeah, around 1870s, maybe a little later. If you were going to go up against Hill. And as we see, he's the only one left standing. It's crazy. Um, his obsession with this opportunity led to voracious self-education. That's my note. He summarized well his feverish hunt for whatever knowledge he could gain. I commenced to get all the information that I could find. Copies of the mortgages, of the complaints, paper books published in connection with the lawsuits, records in the courts. So what he's talking about is that um, the bondholders that financed the SPP were, in, in, uh, were Dutch. And they're... they're they're the investors and the um, ownership of the, or the, I guess the management of the railroad at the time were involved in heavy amount of lawsuits going back and forth. Uh, records of court, such information I could gather from all parties who are likely to have information as to the situation in Holland, as to the situation with the bondholders. Okay, so I just told you that. Uh, I'm going to get back to the result of that, but like one of the most famous um, pieces of advice that I've seen other people give, and it's relatively... Um, I would say controversial to non-obsessives, to non-entrepreneurial types, is not having a plan B. Of burn, They call it burning the boats because when the conquistadors, I think it was invaded like South America, I'm sure they use it in all, all different kinds, this tactic in all, all over the world, but this is the, the, where I learned about it from. Uh, they would land in this new this new area they'd never been before, and immediately as soon as they landed, the captain would would uh, would order them to burn the boats, meaning that we're not going to retreat if things go bad. We either succeed or we die. Um, that's, you know, you have to be an extreme person to do that. But there's a lot of examples through history that people burn the boats. So in this part of the story, James is burning the boats. It says, it is a fair measure of James Hill's grit and ambition uh, that he now staked everything he had, his entire career, on the gamble for the SPMP. He began cutting back any new commitments and moving out of the rail freight business in St. Paul 
to devote his full attention to acquiring the road. He was crossing the Rubicon, and if he failed, he might end up broken. And this is to the degree. He's going all in, which again, uh, we've learned over the last several weeks, when you have an edge, you have to bet heavily. Maybe somebody wouldn't, you know, I don't know if Ed Thorpe or Claude Shannon or even Buffett or Munger would bet everything they had. In fact, I'm almost positive they wouldn't. James does. Uh, It says both Hill and Kitson, who's also going to be his partner in this new project, proceeded to sell off most of their stock in the Red River Transportation Company. That was his business beforehand, which was garnering huge profits carrying immigrants and railroad construction and materials downriver. Hill sold out his entire holding in the Northwestern Fuel Company as well. Uh, That was for $21,500. They then invested all its money. This is the greater part of his net worth. So he's in. He's burned. He's burned the boats. This is gonna either either this is gonna work out, or and I'm gonna be spectacularly uh, successful, or I'm gonna fail. So now he starts. He's, they successfully take control of the railroad, and he starts working in the industry that that he it's his destiny essentially. Uh, along the way in the book, there's descriptions of like how he operated the business. And then in just these random paragraphs, I think that he gives great advice. And that advice to us is staying close to the money. And I think that's a good advice in business. I think it's a good advice in life. So it says, Hill now entered one of the most dynamic phases of his life, for the first time engaging the work of railroad construction. Well equipped by his background and his remarkable astuteness and energy, he would, he would prove remarkably good at it, demonstrating a rare ability to muster and command men and materials and to control both a broad strategy and a myriad of details. Uh, Hill worked and worried by day and night. Now at his office, often until after midnight, and then in the field, driving himself to the limit and seeing little of his family. He found it imperative, he said, to be where the money was being spent. This is an extremely different strategy than most of the people owning railroads at the time. They're in offices nowhere near where the construction is happening. Hill essentially lives his life going back and forth on his line. And I'll talk about more about his obsessive uh, uh, detail to the work, but that the advantage you're going to have actually understanding what's happening in the field as opposed to getting second, third, fourth hand accounts, like it's just, there's no way you're going to be able to compete that way. And there's a reason that he's going to be rewarded financially for this work because managing railroad construction is not easy. Here's a description of that. Keeping working crews in the field, not to mention keeping them working at capacity, proved especially difficult. Hill alternatively cajoled and coerced them. He learned many of the men's names and would walk around the, uh, along the lines, calling out to them familiarly even working for them when they retired for a cup of hot coffee. So they'd take a coffee break. He'd pick up their axe and shovel and start working. And then he'd give it back to them when they're done with their coffee. That's, that's huge. Uh, on the other hand, he routinely fired shift bosses. We're going to see the dual, you know, this dualism that we talked about at the opening of the podcast. On the other hand, he routinely fired shift bosses when they failed to perform to his satisfaction. When one whole crew rebelled, he fired the entire entourage. So he was ruthless. He'd put in the work and he'd do the work for yourself, but he also had really high standards and could be unbelievably, uh, well, ruthless. It's not another way to put that. Um, another example, he had, uh, I, I go back to this over and over again, this edge. He had an edge because he took the time to educate himself more than others would. He just, other people were just weren't willing to do this additional research. The S&P First Division showed net profits by the end of the year well above $500,000. Half a million dollars in the 1800s. That's insane. Indicating what a vast earning potential it truly had as farmer immigrants poured in onto the fertile lands it was opening. So some of the uh, first use of the land that the rail- as a railroad's uh, laying track, they're building these little like frontier towns. And most of the people in there are they're harvesting their farmers. They're, they're creating food. Uh, 
so anyways, I didn't get to how he's able to, to get such a big profit in his first year. Uh, in pouring over its books before he took over, uh, he, had, he had perceived that nearly $200,000 in expenditures had been spent on construction and had been improperly charged to operations, thus understating the true profit capacity of the road. There's also some skimming done off the top and, and, um, and things of that nature. So he's like, well, I'm looking at the books and they don't actually know what they're doing. Um, they're paying more than they have to. This money's being unaccounted for. So that just means that I think I can actually make even more than they, uh, than than I than I thought up beforehand. Uh, something essential to success. I'll talk about over and over again. This is something I've been talking about a lot because it's something I want to improve in my life. I feel like I feel like uh, having a focus in the age of information, maintaining your focus, not allowing yourself to be distracted by things that are not important to to uh, what's important to you, um, is a superpower. Jim Hill had that superpower, uh, he maintained his focus. He says, uh, so they're talking about the financial success that SPMP have. He says, thus was born the Great Hill Fortune and the fortunes of his friends as well. Talks about some of his other partners, this guy named Stephen, it's uh, last name Stephen, another guy last name Smith. Uh, Stephen and Smith would use their newly acquired riches, riches to build the Canadian Pacific Railroad. Hill would join them for a while, he made investments into that, but the Manitoba, that's the Manitoba his railroad has all different names depending on when you're at point SPMP, Manitoba, Great uh, Great Northern. It's all the same thing. So I should just say the GN. Uh, he would join them for a while, but the Manitoba would always remain the focus of his career and his investments. So, but he, he learned, like, he didn't just come to the conclusion that focus was important because he thought that in advance. He, he understood that through trial and error. He made a mistake. He spent time, money, and energy trying to develop another railway while he's trying to do what his first rail, let's let's call it railway A, is not complete. It's not running as as best as he can, right? So what does he do? He decides, hey, A is not done. Let me go invest time and money and energy into B. Then he realizes, like, oh, this is stupid. I need to I need to take care of A, or there is no B. Uh, so it says for him, this venture represented a regrettable division, a diversion from what was becoming ever more clearly each life or each year that this was his life's mission, the building of the St. Paul, Minneapolis, and Manitoba Railway, and the GN. Um, all right, I, I'm going to take a sidetrack to the um, the story to introduce you to another character that I came across in the book, who is a guy named Villard. He's going to be a future Founders episode, but he's basically the opposite. There's a lot of books written on him, but he's the opposite when it comes uh, to his approach with railway construction that that Hill was. It says, for many observers would later compare Hill with Villard. The comparison was inevitable. While Hill was building carefully and checking his costs minutely, Villard built in ignorance of costs. Like other transcontinental plungers, Villard did in fact build rapidly and poorly. Much of his main line would later have to be torn up and rebuilt. Amid mounting deficits and acrimony, Villard would then be forced to resign the presidency of his railroad in, in 1884. So he's in the book a lot. Um, and think of him as like Bizarro, uh, Bizarro Hill. He does it. I mean, he, he's successful. He's got some actually a crazy like story and a collection of businesses is interesting. That's why I want to read a business on him. But they were just kind of just jumping on this opportunity. He didn't come into it organically like, uh, like Hill did. Uh, so I want to get back to focus. This is a uh, section, and the note I left myself is this is what focus, what being focused can do for you. Uh, with each passing month, as the attention of his fellow associates wandered, Hill became ever more focused. Uh, matching incredibly long hours at his desk with frequent forays into the field, he built up a remarkable command of the details of the railroad, its infrastructure, its operations, and its hinterland. 
His knowledge of the railroad in even the most minute detail quickly became a matter of legend. For example, while standing on a Dakota rail siding one day, he spotted an engine numbered 94, meaning a train. From that recognition, Hill astounded the engineer by walking up and addressing him by name. His name was Roberts, and noting that the engine had just been in for repairs. At the same time, Hill, Hill learned the industry itself. So he studied the history of the industry that he operates in. He saw a lot of the things that what got people into trouble previously. So he's doing the same thing we're doing here. He's studying the past to look for mistakes to avoid and good ideas to, to, to steal, right? At the same time, Hill learned the industry itself, its parameters, problems, and potential. His genius lay precisely in his ability to master detail while fashioning broad vision and strategy. This is an example of Hill staying within his circle of competence. It says, Hill resembled his contemporary John D. Rockefeller in that he usually did well only by investing in his main area of focus. His many side forays into other projects quite often failed. And this is just, I mean, the note of himself is one word, smart. Let me read this section to you. Uh, the railroad associates managed the finances of the railroad in a highly conservative and prudent manner. They were neither plungers nor reckless speculators, but were in the business for the long run. Unlike such vaunted manipulators as Jay Gold or Henry Villard, Jim Hill took the opposite Remember, Henry Singleton loved taking the opposite approach of his, his peers, took the opposite tact from speculative practices such as milking a railroad for, of its land grants and its resources and dumping oversold stocks on the gullible public. Instead, this is where we're getting to the smart part. Instead, he advocated and practiced a policy of plowing large percentages of profits directly back into the property, knowing this this is what I mean, knowing that the best defense against invading railroads was a better built system that could operate at lower rates. And that was, was his key. And we'll keep talking about his optimize. How does he, okay, so he's, he's telling us right there. This is what I mean by smart. What is the best defense? There's, uh, there's gonna be a ton of other people who are trying to take business from me. This land is wide open. There could be other people creating essentially the same product that I have. How am I gonna, like, how am I gonna survive? Knowing that the best defense against invading, railroad, invading railroads was, was a better built system that could operate at lower rates. So having lower rates, having low costs, thus being able to make a profit at lower rates is essential to success, right? Well, how do you get lower rates? To get lower rates, he would constantly optimize his railroad. So another smart strategy here. Jim Hill worked incessantly at improving every aspect of the railroad structure and operation. He traveled back and forth along the line looking for dips and bumps and spying out curves that could be straightened and grades that could be lessened. Because the less curves, less grades, the faster the train can go, uh, the less energy expended. More than any other railroad leader of the day, he had an engineer's passion for mim minimizing curvature and grades, knowing that these were the keys to lower rates that would vanquish any competition. He's building a business that's so well run, it's going to be impossible to compete against. Um, oh, so, so he, he, he hasn't extended westward yet, right? And he's right now just, and this is good, it's a good thing he, he didn't. Because uh, he's one of the, everybody else is trying to build a massive railroad first without being able to build, build a small railroad uh, perfectly, right? So it's a completely different strategy. Now he realizes that that's, he, even if he has a successful regional railroad, I almost called an airline, a successful regional rail, railroad or railway, um, eventually it's, it's going to either get bought out by a larger, uh, larger company or he's got to turn that small railroad into a large company. Uh, so this is an example of how James J. Hill was thinking years into the future 
uh, at a time when most people, and I would say probably still true to this day, most people can barely see beyond their nose. Uh, he now became one of the first people to see the looming shadows of coming events and to act accordingly. Assessing the status of his prosperous regional railroad, he came to see it as one component in the evolving national transportation system. The days of prosperous, independent regional railroads must soon end, and the future lay in integrated continental systems that can move heavy tonnages rapidly and without interruption at uniform and falling rates. Either his railroad would find its, its own way from sea to sea, building its own tracks to the Pacific, or, inter, or it would integrate into existing roads uh, into its own, or it would be absorbed. Caught in the new wave of prosperity and rail building, the Manitoba must either lay tracks to the Pacific or become a link in someone else's. Rising to the challenge, he would take his rising to this challenge, he would take his place in the national and international firmament. So this is when he um he realizes like, okay, I have to expand now. I, I figured out how to do this and now I can't stop. So learning how to he already completed one extremely hard thing, right? Which was learning how to do railroad construction and do it profitably. It's extremely hard. And he did it on a tiny scale. Now he's got to take that same lesson and do the hardest thing of his life. And that's take it on, go all the way from Minnesota to, to the Pacific Ocean. All right. Uh, oh, so I just, before I get there though, uh, the note of myself, it's hard to, to compete with a well-run company. Many times they can make money at rates a poorly run company cannot. And so before he does this, there's another line called the Milwaukee line that's trying to compete with them. It says, when the Milwaukee sought directly to invade the valley with another subsidiary, Hill proved to be able to blunt their thrust by the simple expedient of forcing rates below what the opposition could bear, bolstered by his own well-built road, which could haul high tonnages more cheaply. So this is, we've seen this strategy over and over again. Uh, I think of Henry Clay Frist. I think of John Rockefeller. It's just the ability, when you can make money at lower prices than your competitor can, time is on your side and eventually go bankrupt. Um, okay, so now we're going to get to the point. This is what he's building now. The Great Northern Railway is a derivative of the company that Warren Buffett buys all the way into the future in 2009, right? It says, the great adventure of James J. Hill's life came during his prime years with the epic westward construction of his Midwestern Railroad to the Pacific, uh, the St. Paul, uh, and uh, et cetera, et cetera, became the Great Northern Railway, a transcontinental, in fact, one of the best constructed and most profitable of the world's major railroads. So we know it's successful, but these go through hell to get there. The massive effort drove Hill to the very limits of his very considerable endurance. Uh, for all the signs of, middle, of his middle age, the fires of intensity, determination, and ambition burn within him, within him hotter than ever. Uh, the long hours at the office, office continued, and once home, he often sat up late into the night writing long letters to his associates, letters that today are collected in, in actually a library that bears his name. He complained frequently of fatigue, and he never was a good sleeper. He would lay awake for the much of the, of the night. The aches of neuralgia, which is like this painful uh, nerve, like a pain, uh, pain in your nerves, uh, affected him more and more, and on almost, uh, and on almost a predictable basis. Uh, he was forced to stay in bed for days at a time with cold or flu congestion systems. His near manic preoccupation with his business gripped him like a demon. Um, so some of the stuff, like there's a reason no one has built all the way to the West yet. Uh, because the lands they have to go over are extremely difficult. And there's a lot of difficult problems you have to solve. It said ahead lay the upward sloping and increasing arid lands of the Missouri Plateau. 
Uh, and beyond these remote communities lay even more formidable obstacles, the 250-mile-wide swath of cross-cutting peaks and valleys of the northern Rocky Mountain Range. These areas totaled 1,000 air, 1, miles of easily-crossed plains and hard-to-cross mountains, almost all wilderness. Um, to, to get an idea of the scale of what he's trying to do here, uh, we must build 733 miles of road next summer in eight months. This ha all has to be done well, uh, has to be done from one end and is more track than has ever been laid in 10 months elsewhere. So they got to do more in less time than anybody else has ever done ever. It'll take 100 million feet of timber and ties. Uh, the grading crews uh, that, he, that he managed, 8,000 men and 6,600 horses headed out first. They moved 9.7 cubic feet of earth and 32,000 cubic yards of rock. Uh, after the grading crews came the track layers. They were heavily Irish and loudly raucous, which I thought was hilarious. Uh, there were 650 of them, and then they had the same number of horses. Uh, one day, they laid down eight miles of track, and then after them, the spikers, which is another group, uh, have, would follow closely behind and fasten them into positions. Their workforce was expertly led and provisioned right down to the triple-deck dormitory, dormitory, cars, dormitory cars in which they lived. There's a quick story here. Um, I'm going to skip over most of it, but I want to tell you the, the sentence I think I can describe everything to you. So this is a choice, meaning a choice that Hill has to decide, offered the alluring advantages of eliminating a dangerous rival whose shaky finances continued to cause it to behave erratically and thus to cause them... Tr so there's a poorly run rival railroad that is hemorrhaging money and they could either build around it or buy it. And the reason I bring that up is because... I think it was Sam Zamuri, actually, to quote him again, that he said, like, your, your most dangerous competition is not, like, your smart, well-run comp competition. It's the crazy unsuccessful ones because they behave in ways that are completely unpredictable because they're, they're not running a business correctly. And as such, like, th those decisions can actually harm you. So we see the same thing that Hill's having to deal with here. He's like, this, this, I might have to buy this road just so it doesn't cause me trouble because they can't make money and they keep cutting rates. To the point where, like, they're going to drown sooner than I will, but it's still going to cause uh, economic harm to me. So I thought that was really interesting. It's just that the, the takeaway there is that, you know, it's the crazy unsuccessful competition you have that can sometimes be the most dangerous. Okay, so uh, this is, again, the decision to build all the way to Pacific is going to lead to the hardest work of his life. And it was just struggle after struggle after struggle. And this is a little bit about what that struggle was like. It says, trying to manage an imperial railroad while building it west, Jim Hill worked night and day, ulcerating ugh, about expenditures and the agonizing slow pace of construction. So this is the problem. Uh, well, take away one thing I learned not to emulate with, with, with Hill is that he completely abuses his body and, and his health uh, for work. Uh, workers in these remote mountain uh, wilderness proved hard to get and to keep. They often had to labor on steep slope with hand tools and to move dirt and handcarts in terrain where even horses proved difficult to use and feed. In some cases, they're working like below 40 degree weather in the mountains. It's insane. Uh, the pace of building fell to merely a few miles per week, and the boss fretted and ailed as he saw his hope of completion by 1892 fading away. Uh, when his health fails, he's, he's wind up in bed. He's bedridden for you know several days to several weeks at a time. So the book goes on and on about how difficult it is. If you're interested in that, go, I uh, recommend reading it. He goes into great detail about all kinds of, um, like the politics of the of, in the Midwest and, and Northwest in the late 1800s, the business. It's, it's, it's a full-on history book. 
Um, but I want to skip over that, and I want to talk about one, I think, an idea that was essential um, to Hill's success, and I think that can be, can be applied by everybody. And then I want to end on um, comparing and contrasting, like, the outcome of what Jim Hill was able to accomplish and what his competitors were not. So he's got uh, – he, Hill is eventually successful and completes a line. Uh, part of what helped him do this is, I think, is this idea. And I think it's a great idea to think of your business as a living organism, one that's always adapting and improving. It says, to Hill, the railroad trunk lines and their spreading branches formed a living, vital organism, which constantly needed to be replenished. Hill's life passion lay in straightening curves, lowering grades, laying new ballast and high-grade steel rails, replacing wooden trestles with steel ones and wooden culverts with masonry structures, raising tonnages hauled by ever larger cars and engines, and lowering rates and extending ladings over ever longer distances. He cared most about freight and never frills. It's, a, it's an idea of take one idea and uh, take a simple idea and take it very seriously. He'll take it very seriously. And I'll just end here, which is what we see time and time again, that there, like, there's too much of a rush in modern day entrepreneurship, that a well-run business is by definition built slowly. Doesn't mean you can't make a lot of money fast. There's all kinds of you know financial engineering and different ways to do that. But if you want a well-run business that can last a long time and be profitable a long time, you have to do it slowly. And I think that's an example and a takeaway that we'll take from Hill. And it says, part of the notable accomplishment of Hill and his associates lay in simple luck and being forced by the nature of their enterprise to focus their energies for so long on building infrastructure in their Minnesota heartland before undertaking the long and co costly thrust west. So the author's calling that luck there. He didn't have the resources to expand. Also, he wasn't like he didn't finish the job. Um, so you could also argue it's strategy, but the they're saying one of the, big, the, the main benefits of Hills Railroad compared to the other ones that all failed was the fact that he had to do it right and he had to do it slowly and to do it right before he expanded. But more important were Hills' talents, his remarkable mastery over every detail of what was now a far-flung operation, his vision of the inevitable triumph of transcontinental through uh, transcontinental carriers, his insufferable iron will and work ethic, and his recruitment of an able workforce. It would always be a point of special pride to James J. Hill, and deservedly so, that this well-built and tightly capitalized Great Northern Railway, unlike its federally subsidized competitors, did not fail during the 1893 panic. And in case you didn't know, the 1893 panic is the late 1800s version of the Great Depression. It was as deep if, uh, as the Great Depression, uh, and in some cases even deeper, than the Great Depression uh, that's, that's more well known in the 1930s. That is where I'll leave the story. If you want to, if you want the full story, I recommend reading the book. I will leave uh, links everywhere on the show notes. And I, of course, everything I talk about is always available at founderspodcast.com. Um, if you buy through those links, the Amazon will send me a small percentage of the, uh, of the sale at no additional cost to you. It's a great way to support the podcast. Thank you very much for listening. Please tell your friends about, about Founders. Uh, if you know anybody that you think would be interested in, in, in the stories and the lessons we're learning here, please do send them uh, either the website or if you want to send them the individual episodes to your podcast player, whatever you want to do. But I'd uh, greatly appreciate help spreading the word. And I will be back next week and we'll go over another biography of an entrepreneur.